0: Welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. This episode, Guns and the Law, featuring two people with extensive knowledge of and experience with Second Amendment issues to discuss this very timely topic. Ira Feinberg, a member of the City Bar's Executive Committee and Association Secretary, will moderate the discussion. Ira is a litigation partner at Hogan Lovells, though any views that he may express today are his own. And Adam Skaggs is the chief counsel of Giffords Law Center to prevent gun violence. Adam leads the center's litigation work, including as part of the Firearms Accountability Council Task Force, or FACT, a litigation coalition that works with lawyers from many of the nation's leading law firms, among them Hogan Lovells. Here's Ira Feinberg.
1: Gun violence and proposals for gun regulation have occupied center stage around the nation in recent weeks. Unlike other mass shootings, the issue has not faded away after a few days of initial interest. The extraordinary leadership of the Parkland students has already led legislative action in Florida. Florida has adopted legislation raising the minimum age to 21 to buy any firearm, creating a three-day waiting period to purchase long guns, and banning bump stocks. Other states are considering a broad range of other proposals, including proposals to ban assault weapons and large-capacity magazines and calls to expand background checks. Gun rights advocates like the NRA oppose these measures and claim that they violate the Second Amendment. Indeed, the NRA filed the Second Amendment challenge to the new 21-year-old age limit on the same day that the legislation was signed. So, are these proposals reasonable, common-sense regulations of guns, or are they violations of the Second Amendment? Today's discussion is meant to sift through the often misleading political rhetoric about gun rights and to move beyond Second Amendment rhetoric, To a discussion about Second Amendment law, what the Constitution and the courts actually say about these issues. To that end, I'll begin with a primer on what the Supreme Court has said about the Second Amendment, and then Adam and I will move on to a discussion of what the evolving body of Second Amendment law says about the policy proposals getting so much attention these days. So let me start with the key decision on the modern Second Amendment, and that is the Supreme Court's 2008 decision in District of Columbia versus Heller. Heller was the first decision to hold that the Second Amendment established an individual right to possess a firearm and disavowed any necessity for a connection with, to the militia, which is part of the Latin language or text of the Second Amendment. S- Supreme Court and Heller held that the right to possess a handgun in the home for self-defense was at the core of what the Second Amendment was intended to protect and therefore held unconstitutional A absolute ban that the District of Columbia had adopted on the possession of firearms. The court provided little guidance, however, to lower courts on how the Second Amendment should be applied, what exactly the core of the amendment is, what comes within the core and what does not, what to do with things that are not within the core, or what the standard of review should be for Second Amendment claims. The court did, however, make clear that it was not calling into question longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally disabled, on laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places like schools or government buildings, or on laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of firearms. The Court also emphasized that analysis of the Second Amendment must take into account historical tradition, which has led to extensive examination of the history of gun control regulations in lower court decisions. Two years after Heller, the Supreme Court in McDonald v. City of Chicago held that the Second Amendment, like most other provisions of the Bill of Rights, applies equally to state legislation. But otherwise, the Supreme Court has deliberately shied away from addressing Second Amendment issues since Heller and has passed on taking up cert petitions in literally dozens of cases. Instead, there's been extensive litigation in the lower courts on a wide variety of Second Amendment issues, both substantive and procedural, there are many questions that are being vigorously debated in the lower courts, some clear principles emerging, and still a great deal of uncertainty. So with that introduction, let me turn to Adam and ask, what about the constitutionality of Florida's action to raise the minimum age to buy a firearm to 21? What are, the, what are the constitutional contours of that issue?
2: Uh, well, first of all, Ira, uh, thanks for having me. It's good to uh, be able to speak with you today. Um, As to the decision to raise the minimum age for purchasing guns, um, I think there are a couple of ways to look at this. Uh, First, as you said, the Heller decision itself made clear the Second Amendment is not an unlimited right. It's not uh, something that that can't be regulated. Uh, And you quoted from the Heller decision saying that, Uh, The Supreme Court there recognized the constitutionality of uh, qualifications or conditions on the commercial sale of uh, of firearms. Uh, So I think one way to look at this age limit is simply as a condition on sale of guns. Uh, And Heller itself has told us that those are constitutional. So that's one way to look at it. Uh, Another way to approach it is through an originalist lens – Heller has uh, been both lauded and criticized as an example of uh, sort of an originalist uh, approach to the law uh, that Justice Scalia was such an outspoken proponent of. And if you look at uh, the concept of age limits, in particular if you go back to the time that the Second Amendment was ratified in 1791, there is extensive evidence that the age of majority during that time uh, was 21. It wasn't 18. Uh, and so if you think of uh, the age of majority as a time at which constitutional rights vest, so to speak, uh, if we take an originalist approach, the evidence strongly suggests that uh, people under 21 didn't enjoy uh, an unfettered right, really any right to, to purchase, own, or, or use firearms. Um, so the leading case on this subject is one out of the Fifth Circuit uh, that dealt with the federal rule uh, that restricted licensed firearm dealers from selling to 18. Uh, 18- uh, through 20 year olds i was just going to add that i think
1: a lot of people don't realize that federal law today uh, already prohibits the sale of, of of handguns to anyone under the age of 21 and somewhat hard to understand allows only the sale of rifles and, by the way, semi-automatic assault weapons uh, to uh, to people
2: under 21. Is that right? That's exactly right. And, um, you know, as it is under federal law, a licensed firearm dealer, a, a brick-and-mortar gun store, so to speak, uh, can sell uh, a rifle or a shotgun, including an assault rifle, to an 18-, 19-, or 20-year-old, but can't sell a handgun until that person reaches 21. There's been a lot of criticism of the idea that uh, somebody too young to buy a six-pack of beer, go to a bar and and get a drink, uh, can nonetheless step into a store, as we saw in Florida, uh, and purchase an assault rifle uh, and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. Um, but leaving aside the, whether that's uh, the appropriate policy or not, uh, in the case that challenged that federal restriction, uh, the Fifth Circuit issued a decision uh, that upheld the 21-year age limit, uh, and it did so sort of on, on, on two different grounds. The first was looking at that age of majority question that I, I just mentioned and saying from an originalist standpoint, uh, this right didn't really uh, – it didn't really accrue until you reach the age of majority, which was twenty one but the court said even if that wasn't the case, and even if we should think of eighteen year olds as uh, as adults for uh, with second amendment rights, the court went on to say, did Congress have a reasonable basis uh, to restrict the sales of guns to uh, older adolescents, younger adults and what the court did there was it looked at two sort of bodies of evidence on the one hand, an extraordinary uh, body of evidence that shows that 18, 19, 20-year-olds uh, are responsible for a disproportionate amount of crime in the country relative to the size of, uh, of, of their population. Uh, so while they represent a very small uh, segment of the population, they're actually responsible for a significantly large amount of crime. Uh, and then it looked at a second body of evidence, which was neuroscience, the neurological development of young Uh, adults' brains and found that they're really, uh, until the early, uh, or really even the mid-20s, there's still such development going on neurologically uh, that Congress had a reasonable basis to restrict sales of deadly weapons to this population. So I think whether taking a historical approach on the one hand, or whether taking an approach that looks at the evidence and sees whether uh, an age limit is justified, I think there's a very strong case to be made that what Florida did, raising the minimum age to 21, uh, was appropriate and constitutional.
1: Yeah. Our audience should be aware that the case you're referring to in the Fifth Circuit, the NRA versus the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, um, after that, the, uh, the NRA sought rehearing on bank and there were seven judges on the Fifth Circuit who voted to rehear the case on bank. So, uh, it, it isn't a settled issue and the Supreme Court yet hasn't, hasn't addressed it. Um, are there other, other decisions that are helpful on this issue, Adam? There,
2: there are a number of other decisions that have looked at a 21-year-old age limit, um, in some cases as a minimum age to purchase guns, in some cases as a minimum age to carry guns, so in other words, to get a, a permit to carry a concealed weapon, uh, in other cases uh, to do things like accessing gun ranges. The vast majority of those decisions go the same way as that Fifth Circuit case you talked about and uphold uh, the age limits, uh, setting a minimum age of 21. Uh. W- Is there any contrary authority? Well, there is one case in particular um, out of the Seventh Circuit that dealt with uh, a Chicago ordinance that had a flat prohibition on people. Now, this isn't a 21-year-old age limit. It's an 18-year-old limit. In this case, the city of Chicago passed an ordinance that said uh, minors under the age of 18 were just not permitted to use a shooting range, to go to a shooting range and uh, learn to use firearms and that sort of thing. Um, And the court looking at that said, look... You haven't. The city hasn't provided any, uh, or or, or sufficient evidence, at any rate, that there is a a risk to a 16, 17-year-old, perhaps under the supervision of a parent or another adult, uh, using a shooting range. And so the court didn't issue any sort of definitive ruling that you know the Second Amendment uh, rights are, are fully vested at age 15. Instead, it said, look, if kids are uh, under the supervision of their parents or other adults, uh, the city's going to have to come up with a better basis uh, for saying there's no circumstances at which they should be allowed to use a shooting range. So there is some um, some, some some contrary precedent, in particular this case called Ezel versus the city of Chicago um, that strikes down strict age limits, but it it did so in a different context and on a different basis for different reasons than I think would be really implicated uh, when you're talking about a law like the one Florida just passed that uh, sets a 21-year-old age limit for purchasing handguns.
1: Let's turn to the question of whether states can ban assault weapons. That's certainly another proposal that is being widely discussed right now. Uh, in fact, there was federal legislation during the during the Clinton administration that that did in fact bar the uh, sale of assault weapons, uh, enacted in 1994, which was allowed to expire in 2004 during the George W. Bush administration. Um, w- what are your thoughts on the constitutionality of an assault weapons ban?
2: Well, I I, I think in answering that question, the first thing you do is look at uh, the courts that have weighed that question previously. Uh, And we have decisions from a number of circuit courts uh, judging state assault weapons bans. I'm not aware of any challenge to that federal ban that you just talked about. Uh, And of course, that was in force uh, before the Heller case that really started the modern era of Second Amendment law uh, and lapsed four years before Heller was decided. Uh, So there weren't any uh, relevant uh, decisions regarding the federal assault weapon ban. But there have been rulings by circuit courts uh, dealing with state bans on assault weapons, in particular uh, laws in Connecticut, New York, uh, uh, jurisdiction within Illinois uh, and Washington, D.C., and finally Maryland. Now, all those state laws that generally ban assault weapons in a similar way as the federal law did, all of those have been upheld. Uh, Circuit courts, the Seventh Circuit, D.C. Circuit, Second Circuit, and Fourth Circuit have all upheld those laws, Uh, and in every case, uh, the challengers to those laws have sought Supreme Court review. They've asked the Supreme Court to reverse the circuit court decisions. The Supreme Court has said no each and every time. Uh, So there is, to date at least, a unanimous uh, set of decisions dealing with assault weapons. Many of these same laws uh, regulate the size of ammunition magazines and ban large-capacity magazines. Um, And in every case so far, the courts have upheld these regulations. Uh, so just looking at what courts have said to date, I think there's a, a, a pretty good reason to believe that uh, additional state regulations or restrictions on assault weapons would also be found to be constitutional.
1: There's, there's one other important decision that we should mention here, and that is in uh, in the District of Columbia, after the Supreme Court acted in in Heller and struck down the ban on handguns, the district adopted a different law that prohibited assault weapons and, and uh, also um, uh, magazines with capacity over ten rounds, and that was upheld by the D.C. Circuit, uh, and never went back to the Supreme Court. So that also was another very helpful decision on that on that issue.
2: Can, can I share one other thought, Ira, on on these assault weapon cases? The D.C. Circuit uh, essentially uh, said, in assessing whether this is constitutional, there are a few questions we want to we want to ask. One, does this extinguish the right to self-defense? And of course, because handguns and other types of firearms were available the court said, look there are plenty of avenues to exercise your Second Amendment rights so simply taking this one military military style um, option off the table doesn't doesn't uh, significantly um, uh, infringe your Second Amendment rights um, the other piece of evidence of course courts have looked at is uh, the lethality of crimes committed with these guns the fact that these guns are so often committed and used to commit mass shootings. Um, So most of the courts that have upheld these laws have sort of done so uh, by looking at, you know, does this preserve avenues to exercise the Second Amendment right? Uh, Does this, uh, is there evidence to support regulating these differently? Uh, And they've said sort of on the interest balancing, there's a basis to support these laws. They are constitutional. But all those courts have assumed that these weapons are protected by the Second Amendment sort of at the outset of their analysis. The one court that's taken a different approach uh, in a very interesting way is the Fourth Circuit. And the Fourth Circuit had a case challenging Maryland's ban on assault weapons and large capacity magazines. Uh, that went to the full Fourth Circuit sitting on banc. Uh, and in a very interesting decision that listeners may want to look, look into, a case called Colby versus Hogan, the Fourth Circuit for the first time said, these weapons are not even protected by the Second Amendment. The Fourth Circuit looked at the Heller decision, which had said the Second Amendment does not extend to allow civilians to possess essentially weapons of war, weapons whose primary purpose is uh, for use on the battlefield in combat conditions, uh, and therefore said these types of assault weapons, uh, that court believed, uh, were similar to the types of weapons of war that are used by uh, American soldiers, uh, battlefields around the world, uh, and therefore said we don't actually believe possession of these weapons by civilians back home uh, in our communities is protected by the Second Amendment. Uh, so that was, I think, an interesting outlier opinion, uh, and went even further than the other cases, which have also upheld uh, uh, these assault weapon regulations. That case too, the, the plaintiffs sought to get the Supreme Court to reverse that decision. Uh, they obviously disagreed with the Fourth Circuit's reasoning. Uh, but there too, the Supreme Court did not intervene. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see whether the rationale of the fourth circuit is picked up in subsequent challenges to these kinds of laws
1: one of the things that the new florida legislation does is also to ban bump stocks which were used in uh, infamously in the in the nevada shooting to to uh greatly what well, to turn a semi-automatic weapon into basically an automatic weapon um do you see any constitutional problem with that legislation? And I'm aware there is a already a lawsuit that's been filed in Florida to challenge that as a taking of property without just compensation uh, as to people who already own these devices. What are your thoughts on that, Adam?
2: Well, I think, first of all, to the extent that the effect of uh, these bump stocks is to convert um, you know, semi-automatic weapons into the, the functional equivalent of a fully automatic machine gun, uh, I'd go back to the Heller uh, language that I just cited in the Fourth Circuit context, uh, which is that Heller very clearly says – Uh, machine guns and other military-style weapons do not enjoy the protection of the Second Amendment.
1: And and there's been a federal prohibition of machine guns for a long time on the books, and there's no real question about the validity of that legislation.
2: That's correct. That's correct. Uh, Machine guns, unlike other firearms, are regulated uh, very strictly under something called the National Firearms Act, which has a a registration uh, 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 regime and very strict background checks. There are some number of machine guns that are still in circulation in the country, uh, but few. Purchases and, and uh, future manufacture of machine guns is prohibited. Um, so, I think to the extent bump stocks basically convert regular guns, so to speak, into the functional equivalent of machine guns, uh, I think it's certainly an easy uh, case uh, that their regulation or their prohibition uh, would be constitutional. The takings question is a slightly uh, different approach. Basically, uh, the plaintiffs in that case have said we own this property, we own bump stocks, there's a certain value to this property, and because Florida has outlawed them, essentially, uh, they have denied the value, they have essentially taken away the value of our property, they have rendered property that we invested in that we own to be useless, uh, indeed criminalized possessing it, uh, and therefore that's an unconstitutional taking. I think the flaw with that argument uh, is that all these bump stock owners in Florida have several months, the law hasn't actually taken effect, and they have several months uh, where it's still legal to own these. There's nothing stopping them from transferring them to a residence out of state or to a relative's house that lives out of state uh, where they can still enjoy owning that property. There's nothing stopping them from selling those uh, items to uh, a purchaser who lives in a state where bump stocks are not illegal. So the idea that somehow prohibiting possession of these in the state of Florida has rendered the value of this property entirely useless seems to me a bit of a stretch
1: one of the other major proposals that's being discussed a, lot, uh, a great deal these days is increased bank ra- background checks any legal issues that would prevent uh, the implementation of that proposal
2: you know we've seen a couple of challenges to comprehensive background check laws in particular, Uh, In the years after the Sandy Hook shooting, both Colorado and Washington state have adopted sort of universal background check requirements. There have been some other states that have as well, but those haven't been challenged. In both the Colorado and the Washington state case, uh, the attempts to challenge those as violating the Second Amendment were unsuccessful. So there's some uh, judicial precedent for the idea that background check laws are fully constitutional. But I also think that makes sense as a matter of uh, maybe common sense or logic Heller says that it is fully constitutional to deny dangerous people uh, the ability to possess firearms. They specifically mention, as you said at the outset, felons or uh, people suffering from mental illness that are a danger to themselves or others from having guns. If it is constitutional to uh, prohibit certain dangerous people from possessing guns, it strikes me that uh, the simplest way to enforce that uh, prohibition, which is to make sure anyone acquiring a gun has a background check, um, would, uh, would also be legal. So uh, I think we probably uh, will not see uh, these kinds of background check laws that are being discussed held unconstitutional uh, under the law as it exists now. I want to
1: turn now to one of the most important questions that is being debated in the courts uh, relating to gun regulation, and that is issues involving carrying of firearms, either um, openly or, or carrying concealed weapons. Uh, this really is was one of the really hot issues in litigation under the Second Amendment, isn't it, Adam?
2: It absolutely is. We've seen um, cases really across the country challenging different restrictions. Uh, Most of them have involved um, laws that regulate carrying concealed weapons in public, uh, although there are some uh, lawsuits that involve carrying uh, guns openly, that is to say, you know, fully visible in in plain sight. Um, And thus far, uh, by and large, courts have upheld regulations of carrying guns in public, uh, although there is some uh, differentiation in the way that courts have approached those questions. One
1: of the things that uh, Second Amendment advocates argue uh, under this, uh, relating to carrying, is that the Second Amendment itself explicitly says that the people should have the right to uh, keep and to bear arms, and that's the foundation for their argument. Um, the Ninth Circuit in Peruda. Hell, that there's no constitutional right to carry a concealed weapon in public.
2: Is that right? That's right. The the Ninth Circuit, again, an en banc decision of of the Ninth Circuit, uh, went through really a comprehensive historical analysis. uh, Again, taking its cue from Heller, which said we should take an originalist approach to these questions. Uh, The Ninth Circuit went back even uh, into Anglo-American law prior to the Constitution, prior to the ratification of the Second Amendment, and essentially traced. Uh, A consistent thread of law that said um, both before and after the founding of the country and then throughout the the, 18th, 19th, and 20th century that laws uh, which prohibited carrying concealed weapons in public uh, did not violate the Constitution. And so based on uh, that historical, that unbroken historical tradition, the Ninth Circuit said we do not believe that the right to carry a concealed weapon uh, is indeed protected by the Second Amendment. That left open the question of whether, what I referred to earlier, open carry, uh, whether carrying a visible gun and a holster on your hip, whether that enjoys constitutional protection. And that is a question that is now being litigated in the Ninth Circuit in at least three cases that I'm aware of.
1: Okay. But the Ninth Circuit is um, kind of out there by itself on this issue. There is, in fact, a conflict on the circuits on the question of concealed carry licensing, uh, lo- a number of states have license, have license requirements that, re- that someone who wants to carry a, a concealed weapon uh, is required to obtain a license from the state and require a showing of basically good cause, something above just being a law-abiding citizen, some specific good reason why they need to be carrying a gun around. Uh, and those laws are quite restrictive and are being challenged around the country by the NRA and other gun rights advocates. Um, DC Circuit in the Wren case last July held that, that in fact that that was un, that, that that type of law was unconstitutional, uh, and there are other decisions that are um, that are uh, have come to the other uh, other d- decision on that. Um, what what are your thoughts on that issue, Adam?
2: Well, you're right in identifying that DC Circuit opinion. Um, you know that was a, a two to one split decision. Uh, which by that two-to-one vote um, struck down the District of Columbia's essentially a good cause uh, requirement to get a concealed carry permit. Now, standing in contrast to the D.C. Circuit, uh, let let me see here, the first, second, uh, third, fourth, Ninth and Tenth Circuits, I may be forgetting one, but certainly those have all either ruled that, uh, as we discussed with the Ninth Circuit, there is no constitutional, there is no Second Amendment right to carry a concealed gun in the first instance, or they have said, um, we will assume for the purpose of of this discussion, we will assume that there is a right to carry uh, concealed guns in public. But what we'll do is we'll look at uh, these restrict restrictions that certain states impose requiring good cause or, or other types of training or other requirements. Uh, and we will consider whether those are an unconstitutional infringement on the right to carry concealed guns in public. And in all the other cases that have addressed that question, uh, the courts have said uh, either based on the historical tradition of, of regulating or prohibiting concealed weapons, or based on the social science about the dangers uh, that guns in public areas, guns on public streets, uh, pose to the public. Um, these regulations of the right to carry concealed weapons were constitutional, um, and you know there's 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 a there's a great decision um, out of the Tenth Circuit. The name of the case is Bonady, uh B-O-N-I-D-Y, and in that case, um, the court set out um, what I think makes a lot of sense, and it said, look. When we look at guns in public, there are different interests that have to be taken into account than when guns are in the home for the simple reason that, uh, you know, obviously a gun in the home could be a danger to the gun owner. We have a, a epidemic of suicide in this country, uh, not to undermine uh the risks of guns in the home. uh, But those are to, generally speaking, the gun owner, the other residents of the household. When we bring guns into public, uh, unlike other rights like uh, rights to free speech, when when we talk about guns in crowded public areas, uh, they present different public safety threats to other people besides the gun owner. And therefore, it makes sense to look at guns in public differently than guns in the home. Uh, and so based on uh, based on that basic principle and the evidence of the dangers and uh, the the correlation of, of more guns being carried in public with uh, increases in crimes like assault and and, and other violent crimes uh, those courts have upheld those It's only the DC Circuit for the first time uh, quite recently, that one of these regimes has been struck down. And again, it was by a two-to-one decision. I think
1: there's another decision by the Seventh Circuit in the Moore case that's pretty much in alignment with Wren with and D.C. Circuit. Isn't that right?
2: Yeah. the the In the Moore case, um, the Seventh Circuit was confronted with an Illinois, Illinois law, which was unique in the entire nation, um, which essentially uh, prohibited any person from carrying any gun in public under any circumstances. All of the other cases that we've looked at and that we've been talking about in these concealed carry cases have said, okay, there is a right to carry concealed weapons. Uh, concealed carry is legal uh, in this state, but you just need to get a license to do it, and there are certain hoops you have to go through to get the license. In the Illinois case, on the other hand, there was no opportunity to get a license to carry a concealed weapon or, or carry guns in public legally in any other way, uh, except for law enforcement, of course. And so in that case, they said, look, whatever the extent of the right to carry guns outside the home is, we don't need to decide today. What we can say is that an absolute ban on any guns in public uh, is not constitutionally justified. Uh, now, that case, that question did not go to the Supreme Court. So we don't have a definitive ruling on that question. But certainly, uh, the Seventh Circuit issued that decision that you just mentioned in the Moore case, uh, and the state of Illinois, rather than uh, taking that case to the Supreme Court and asking for a definitive ruling on that, said, okay, that's fine. We're not going to appeal this any further. What we're going to do is go back. uh, And indeed, what they did was to enact a concealed carry uh, uh, regime that allows people to carry concealed
1: weapons. And and D.C. likewise decided not to appeal the decision in ran and risk a a potentially adverse Supreme Court decision. Um, The result of this conflict in the circuits, though, is that uh, my understanding is that gun rights advocates are aggressively pursuing litigation elsewhere to try to get this issue before, before the Supreme Court. I'm aware there's a case in the First Circuit, the Gould case, which uh, presents essentially the same issue uh, and will be decided presumably sometime later this year.
2: That's right. And what's another thing that's quite interesting is in addition to the Gould case in the First Circuit, I mentioned before that uh, uh courts in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and other circuits have upheld these uh, types of concealed carry restrictions, Uh, gun rights advocates have actually gone back and filed identical lawsuits to the ones that lost before the 2nd Circuit uh, and and, and other courts. Uh, And they filed, I believe, in New Jersey and New York, if I've got that right, uh, cases that they have filed saying, we know there's 2nd and 3rd Circuit precedent, that means these cases will lose. Uh, but we're prepared to litigate to have an opportunity to get the Supreme Court uh, to, to to reassess this question. So even in in situations where they are guaranteed to lose at the circuit level, uh, they are trying to relitigate this question in hopes that eventually the Supreme Court will step in and take one of these cases.
1: Uh, one last topic that I wanted to raise with you, Adam, before we have to go, and that it relates to the con- Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act. Would- which I understand is the National Rifle Association's number one legislative priority. Would you explain what that legislation is and what it would do?
2: Sure. Well, as we've been talking about with concealed carry, under current law in all 50 states, it is legal to carry a concealed weapon. Now, again, in some cases, uh, you need to get a permit. Some states have very rigorous licensing requirements. Some states require you to have a good reason. Uh, Some states uh, require a very strict uh, test to make sure you have a clean, clean, clean criminal record. Um, Other states take a very lax approach. Indeed, in a dozen states, there's no requirement to get any permit whatsoever. Um, And the states have adopted these different types of approaches to uh, permitting concealed carry uh, based on I think what's kind of a common sense idea that the rules that make sense in a crowded urban state like New York uh, may not uh, be the same types of rules that are appropriate in a very rural state like Montana or Wyoming. Uh, and if you know a state like Wyoming wants to say you can, at the age of 18 or at the age of 21, carry a hidden handgun uh, in public without any training, without any showing that you know how to safely use that, well, that's something that some states may choose to do. But if other states that have very densely populated, crowded urban areas want to say, you know what, we we want a little bit more, we want to make sure anybody who's carrying a gun in public uh, has basic uh, you know, safety training, et cetera, uh, then that's appropriate for those states. What this bill, the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act, would do is say, if if you are from a state where you can carry legally, maybe without a permit whatsoever, then you can go anywhere else in the country to any other state... Uh, and carry legally with no permit, even if that state has much more rigorous uh, permitting requirements, even if that state uh, wouldn't allow you to to carry a gun uh, because you wouldn't meet the, the standard for that state. So essentially, this would override every single state's judgments about what criteria must be met to carry guns in public. Um, and uh, And, you know, it's certainly problematic from a standpoint of uh, of, of states' rights, of states' autonomy to make basic public safety decisions. Uh, and of course, there's an irony because the backers of this uh, are, are legislators who, in other circumstances, are very high on states' rights. They seem to have uh, decided that s- states' rights must uh, uh, must yield when it comes to uh, carrying guns in public. Um, so, so that's an overview of the law. The law has actually passed, or, or I should say the bill has passed the House of Representatives. Uh, it is currently in the Senate. Um, it's unclear uh, whether it would pass if they held a vote. Uh, it will be very close one way or the other. Um, and I think we've seen uh, a lot of engagement on both sides of this. As you say, the NRA has said this is their number one priority. Uh, on the other hand, you have law enforcement uh, and others from around the country, really, that have said this is a. Leaving aside that it interferes with states' rights, this is really dangerous for public safety. Uh, so police, uh, police leaders, prosecutors uh, have come out and said this is a terrible, terrible idea. Um, I think they have identified a number of um, constitutional questions about this proposal. Uh, There are uh, some basic Tenth Amendment questions about whether it's appropriate for Congress to essentially make one state enforce or abide by the laws of another state. Uh, And it's really an unprecedented type of law. We don't have any other situations where federal law requires states to enforce the law of other states. Uh, So I think if this did come to pass, we can Um, Certainly, we can rest assured that it would be challenged, uh, uh, that there would be litigation about its constitutionality. I think there are serious questions uh, about whether it could um, survive a constitutional challenge, Uh, but it may be that we never uh, find out because it may be that the Senate uh, doesn't go ahead and pass this. So uh, we'll need to keep a a close eye uh, on this legislation.
1: Adam, thank you very much for an incredibly informative and helpful discussion of the Second Amendment issues that are current around the country.
0: Thank
2: you very much. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ira.
0: Thank you for listening to this 44th Street podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on iTunes or Google Play or visit our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Eric Friedman and Alex Cardaris.